Praise God. Today is an awesome day for praise reports. It, it is awesome to have our live stream family here. It is awesome to have not only them, but if you guys didn't know, Pastor David from Costa Rica is here as well. Hi, David. You could stand up and say hi if you want. Praise the Lord. He doesn't speak English, but we hope you do. This is, uh, you'll get something from it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. D David has some great English over there. But praise God. I, I'm excited because, you know, when I was asked to share uh, the word, I've been really just blessed lately because it's, it's just been a season where the Lord has allowed people to send us in a lot of praise reports recently, people getting saved, uh, people being edified. And it's been really cool because... Um, for those who don't know, maybe Blessed Hope's the only thing you know about our church is what we have here, but there's an extension, which really was the foundation of Blessed Hope, which was Pastor Joe's ministry, Good Fight Ministries, and that's where I actually started uh, serving at. Actually, I started serving at Blessed Hope, but then I got asked to move into a part-time role and then a full-time role at both Good Fight and Blessed Hope Chapel, and uh, just this last Friday morning, Praise God, uh, we actually hit 200,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel, which is absolutely incredible that that many people are getting to hear the gospel. Um, in, in fact, over 6.8 million people have tuned in to uh, different videos on that YouTube channel this last year, many of which, actually all of which, um, pertain, have the gospel in it. So it is really cool to see, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, passive income where you're making money while you're sleeping, but uh, it's really cool to be able to have this format that while we're still sleeping, people are hearing the gospel over and over again, even if neither many of us here don't sleep too much uh, <laughs> for different reasons. But God is so good. We, we are excited about baptism, and I'll be talking a little bit about that in today's message. But as John mentioned, the focus is going to be how to resist the enemy and how to recognize the enemy when he is trying to use his schemes to take us down. And far too many people uh, believe that once you say a prayer, uh, once you come to Christ, that, you know, spiritual warfare and all that, you know, we're, we're fine now, we're in Christ, so we don't have to worry, the devil's not going to bother you. Or there's even some who are ignorant enough to believe that Satan is bound and has nothing to do with what's going on. And if I could tell you one thing, it would be read the New Testament and find anywhere where spiritual warfare is not the prerequisite for understanding what is being written about. I, I think that this is something that if, if you are involved or in ministries or involved in ministries where this is not an active part about what's going on in the sense of warning people of the wiles, of the schemes of the devil, I would say there needs to be a change of heart and mind because too many people are being deluded and they are not ready to face the enemy when he is sneaking up on them unaware. They are not ready to face what is before them because they are not being equipped. They are not being told they need to equip themselves for the frontal attack of the enemy. Sorry, this thing is off center. I'm not OCD, but that was messing me up there. Um, 
uh, <laughs> I am. I, I do kind of can go off and astray, but I'll try not to. Um, but it is it is really really important to me, and one of the reasons for that. And I, I've been a wrestling coach now. I think fifteen years. I've been a wrestling coach, and one thing that can happen is your wrestler, when they have an opponent that they're wrestling against, if they have no idea what this guy may be good at, they have no idea you know, what he looks like or anything, and he gets out on the mat, and they're not prepared to defend what he's going to be throwing at them, the next thing you know, they're going to be laid flat on their back. And the ref's going to be happening to tap the mat. Please stop hurting them. Stop it. Right? And, and, and then it's embarrassing. Right? And, and that's what can happen to so many people if... They are not rightly prepared. And I, I love this analogy, but it's, it comes from a true story. And it's interesting because it comes from the 2003 Super Bowl that took place between the Oakland Raiders and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And it was really interesting because the players were mic'd up for the Super Bowl. If you guys know what that means, it means they had microphones on them, some of the players, so that while the action and the game was going on, they didn't play the sound for anybody because I'm sure if Bill Belichick could hear it, he would make sure he knew exactly what was going on so he could find out their plays. But what they actually did did is they play it afterwards and you get to hear a little bit about hey this is what this is what they were saying this is what was going on and it was really interesting because the Buccaneers at that time had a really deep team with a bunch of Hall of Famers. Uh, their middle linebacker uh, was a Hall of Famer. Their safety was a Hall of Famer. They had a guy on the cusp who was a wide receiver. All these guys were so good. But this random guy, Dexter Jackson, who never really did anything in the NFL, ends up being the Super Bowl MVP. And how did he end up being the Super Bowl MVP? It's very clear. In fact, when they played the clip of them talking, he says, oh, it's a sluggo seam, which is a, a, a route that was going to be run, and he knew to step in front of it to intercept the pass. And he did it twice and actually returned them both for touchdowns. And it ended up being a complete blowout, 48-21. Uh, to 21. It was a terrible Super Bowl to watch because it was boring. Most people were just watching the ads pretty much. But what was interesting is when the mic'd up version came, the, the players said this, quote, they're too predictable. We know them. And Monty Kiffin, who was the defensive coordinator, um, actually met with John Gruden, the coach at the time. And what they were saying was, when they sat with the team, the players said, Monty, on that last one he checked, remember how Gruden was telling us they only called two plays? That's exactly what they did. And he said, Mike, every play they've run, we've ran in practice. It's unreal. Well, how did they know every play? Was it because they had the playbook and they were, they were scheming and they were like, oh, we got this playbook? No, that's not at all. What happened was John Gruden, the previous year, was the head coach of the very team they were playing. And so they actually traded a first-round pick to get the coach from the Raiders. And then guess what? They know all their plays. John Gruden, for the entire practice preparing for the Super Bowl, acted like he was the quarterback who he had trained and resurrected the career of a guy named Rich Gannon, who was very mediocre until he became under John Gruden. And guess what? Once they knew all the plays, it was they were decimated. It was not close. It was boring and they just killed him. It really was not close at all. But what's interesting 
is what would you think if the players, when John Gruden was going over all the plays, expressing him, this is what they do right here. They're going to try to attack us this way. This is how we stop them. Right here, and they're going to only run these plays. And, you know, Warren Sapp or John Lynch, right, said, you know what? I'm, I'm a little too busy right now. I want to focus on other things. You know, I got some interviews I got to do. I got all this stuff. I don't really need to know what they're doing. I'll just figure it out on the fly. Well, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. And first of all, they'd probably be sat if that took place. So many Christians, sadly enough, do the same thing with the Lord. When he is warning, this is how the enemy is going to attack. This is how he is going to come and try to get you. This is how he's trying to get your eyes off of Jesus. And as I said, spiritual warfare, not only a prerequisite for understanding the New Testament, even in the early church period, it was completely a prerequisite. In fact, when we look at guys like Irenaeus, he wrote uh, what was called Against Heresies, where he wrote against the Gnostics and how Satan was using them. But over the course of time, one of the ways that they would actually disciple believers was specifically getting them to understand that Satan is coming after them, that there is a spiritual war going on, that we are not simply moist robots bumping into each other, but that there is a good and there is an evil. And it's real. It's not fake. In fact, in three four, between 348 and 350 AD, and this is interesting because we have a baptism today, and between 348 and 350, Cyril of Jerusalem actually wrote what we called a, a catechism let, uh, let, uh, literature, and it's not catechism in the same way you would think of it in, in a Catholic uh, viewpoint, but these were the things to teach the believers what they were to know when they were about to be baptized. Because it was very important. And one of the things that he writes in there is the fact that they are writing these uh, literatures for the church so that the church can know exactly why they're being baptized if they do not have the money to afford a codex of the Bible. And so they wanted people to know, if we summarized it up, what are you getting baptized into? What's happening today when you are leaving behind the world and proclaiming to the world, I am not following you. I'm turning from the world. I am turning to Christ. And I am going to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when I go into that water. And it's not just, well, this is a really good, God has a really good plan for your life and he can put the cherry on top of it. No, you have died to the world and your life is now hidden in Christ. And this is serious. This is real. And you need to know what you're actually getting baptized into. Far too many people hear a gospel message that is so far incomplete. God has a wonderful plan for your life. If we can just have our, you know, everyday Friday and uh, you know what, when, when you get saved, just say this little prayer with me and everything's going to be good. That's not how it goes. That's nowhere we find in scripture. It says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, not some, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It says, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that very verse that I just read to you 
was the foundational verse is what started the lecture for catechism for the early church to be baptized in the fourth century. It was with that verse so that first and foremost, you will know that you will have spiritual warfare. Satan will be coming after you. And it should be no secret. We should recognize it so we know when the enemy is coming. And in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to camp out a little bit in Ephesians. I'll jump a little bit back and forth, but we'll be camping out there a bit through the entire book. Um, but specifically, when we get to chapter 6, we'll read through it. But I want to start this first with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, it's, it's amazing when we read this book. Because this book, along with another book, uh, Colossians, have a lot of similarities in them. And when you read them, they're both written by Paul, but he goes over a lot of similar material. In fact, we talk about the importance of worship, specifically, I believe, corporate worship, as we come together on the Lord's Day and we sing to the Lord together, that both in Colossians and Ephesians, both books say something very similar, that we need to sing to one another or teach one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart to the Lord. And so we are supposed to, that's a command, and guess what? The worship is teaching you something. If you are just sitting there listening to some of these songs that are so, and they claim to be spiritual songs, but it's just regurgitated ohms, it sounds like, that sounds like it's talking to some lover. I don't know if it's your girlfriend or Jesus here. That's a problem a lot of times. And I'm not saying there isn't that love relationship there, but I, I really enjoy, and the, it's crazy because during Christmas time, some of those hymns are the most deeply theological hymns. I mean, Charles Wesley wrote some of the most beautiful, what we call Christmas hymns, but some of those hymns are so deeply theological in what they are singing, if you're really listening to what's going on, and it, and it calls out sin. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, and that should be something that is normative in the church when it comes to us expressing worship. But what's interesting is both those letters, Colossians and Ephesians, both of them say that, and I think that's important. And both of them are what we call in uh, manuscript evidence or in theology a circular letter. It doesn't mean it's written in a circle. It means it was written to circulate. And we actually have manuscripts of the book of Ephesians where it leaves uh, Ephesus blank, where it doesn't say to the church in Ephesus. It leaves it blank. Why? Because it was to whatever church it was sent to. And they would go out and get these messages out. And the same way with Colossians. In fact, even in Colossians, in the material, it says, take this to Laodicea, which is even more interesting because Colossians was a very, very small city and Laodicea was a metropolis. But when Paul was writing, he's like, I'm going to write to this little city because of how wicked Laodicea is, I believe, when you look at it. But really interesting. But here's what it says in Ephesians 4, verse 27. And this will be the, the emphasis for this message. It says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Opportunity there in some translations might say a foothold, or it's uh, the same word is translated over and over again as place. Place. Do not give him a place in your life. And the point of this message is to make sure we do not give 
Satan that foothold, that we do not allow for him to have any space in our life, that we say no and we resist. One of the interesting things when we look at uh, Ephesus as a whole, one of the things that's really awesome when you're looking through the letters of Paul uh, and even of Peter as well and, and so forth, when you're looking at these letters, a lot of times we can go back to the book of Acts and get the background on what was going on and what the religious context of those places were. And in Acts chapter 19, you actually get the context of what Ephesus looked like when they went to, to preach there. And Apollos went there, and obviously Paul as well. And they go to Ephesus to preach there. And the, the people of Ephesus, both Jew and Gentile, if you look at it, are steeped in what we call the occult. They are steeped in witchcraft over and over again in that region. And most of them deal with the false gods and so forth. But many of even the Jewish exorcists were steeped in the witchcraft. And in Ephesians chapter 19, I'll just read it because we'll be going, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 13 through 17, it says this, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, whom Paul preaches, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Now, what's interesting, a background here, Dr. Craig Keener talks about how the ancient exorcists uh, of that time, would actually think that a more powerful demon could exercise out a less powerful demon. And so they would call upon demons that were they thought were more powerful to exercise a less powerful demon. And then throughout, and this starts all the way in chapter 2, all of the book of Acts is proclaiming that Jesus is the name above every name, that you guys have been so deluded by demons that you think that some other demon can fight a demon to get him out just because he's stronger. And he, right here, the sons of Sceva are learning very quickly, sorry, buddy, you don't get to play with Jesus like a magic trick. It doesn't work that way. You're done. Okay, and they got beat up and basically made fun of by the demons. It's pretty incredible. And what's interesting, if, if you looked at the background there and you see some of the things that the Greeks would have believed about fate and how fate uh, basically was also a false god and fate itself worked through the stars in the sky and so forth. And you have so many people today that are opening up astrological readings and so forth, thinking that they're going to get some advice because the stars that my God created, even when people talk about Mother Earth, I'm like, 
Mother Earth, give me a break. This is my father's footstool. Give me a break. Okay, Mother Earth and, you know, thinking you can look at stars and hope for the best. Like, how about if people seek their God? But so many people are doing this every single day, and they don't even realize. They are so deluded, sadly enough, and they have been given over to Satan to the point where they have no idea that this is wicked, that they can't even tell the difference between a miracle and magic. The difference obviously being the fact that God is the one who initiates and does and calling upon demons. Guys, this is some dangerous stuff, but it's so prevalent. But what's interesting is that in Ephesians, it attacks this as well. So that we recognize before we get to probably the clearest understanding of how we go and battle against the wiles of Satan, before we ever get to chapter 6, we get started on the foundation in the first three chapters of Ephesus. We get started on the foundation in doctrine and understanding where we are seated so that we know where we are seated when the enemy comes and attacks us. He starts us off when we read the book of Ephesus as a whole in chapter one, we are told very clearly and we are started off with the theology of what we call Christocentric salvation. When we look at Ephesians chapter one, that we find salvation in Christ and because we find salvation in in Christ, we are now seated in heavenly places right? So we are now seated in heavenly places. So when the wiles of the devil, we don't got to worry like, oh no, are we going to be like the sons of Sceva? Are we going to be, oh, in Jesus name, get away. And he's going to be able to attack us. Not if we're in Christ, not if you are in Christ. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And what you need to recognize is you are seated in heavenly places and it's juxtaposed. It is put up against the difference between the rest of the world. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were, past tense, you were, but you're not anymore because guess what? You are seated in heavenly places because Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures and was raised again according to the scriptures and we have victory in Christ and we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. That we, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. These are promises. Every promise that you ever see in scripture are for those in Christ. You never take a promise for those in Christ and place them upon those who are not in Christ. There are children of God and children of the devil. First John chapter three is very clear on that. He who practices righteous, righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. But he who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. But Jesus Christ came to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. Amen? And so now the children of God and the children of the devil, it says in first, in first John chapter three, verse 10, it says they are obvious. It's a word for manifest, being able to be seen, right? So we can recognize it because those who practice, and this is not a a teaching on some sinless perfectionism because James himself, who I believe was 
very sanctified in the time of writing the book of James, says, we all stumble in many ways. Jesus said in Luke 17 that stumbling blocks are unavoidable, right? So we recognize that. First uh, John chapter 2 says, I write these things you may not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? So we recognize that, but it is different when someone stumbles, right? It is different falling down into sin than it is for it to be the narrative of your life. Where the narrative of your life is a life with zero victory. It doesn't mean that there are not battles that you will fight. There are battles that you will fight. I thought about, I was actually had written a teaching on Galatians 1 and 2 regarding Paul's, um, Paul's rebuke of Peter, which is absolutely insane if you actually look at uh, Galatians 1 and 2 and you see that Paul talks about how he was an, a called apostle and then he says, I have given you the true gospel because there was Judaizers coming into the region of Galatia, going church to church and telling people, yes, follow Jesus, but you have to be circumcised to be saved. And then Paul's like, no, I received the gospel. And not only did I receive the gospel, I actually went after preaching it for years, I went to the apostles and said, am I doing this right? And he mentioned specifically that he went to Peter. And then after that, he talks about it. Then he saw the rest of the 12 many years later and checked. And he says, of the gospel I preached to you, they added nothing. Everything I taught to you was true. And I got that message straight from Jesus. So he actually solidifies his testimony as true by banking on the reputation of the apostles. I say all that, Why? Because guess what? After saying all that in chapter two, not only saying, hey, Peter has the same gospel that I'm preaching to you. Peter's the one who, look at him. He told me the gospel I'm preaching is right. It is correct. And then he goes, and I rebuked Peter to his face. Think about that. Think about that. I have this, the apostle, Peter, he preaches the true gospel. You know he does. I can back it up because he does. And we have the same message. And he goes, and I still rebuked him to his face. Why? Because he says he stood condemned. Because when Jews would come in there and he was sitting with Gentiles, he would ditch the Gentiles and only sit with the Jews and act like he didn't hang out with the Gentiles. And he said he stood condemned for doing such a thing. Both of them, by the way, um, not, not that Paul did anything wrong there, but Peter had already had the Holy Spirit poured out into him. So yeah, people can make big, big blunders. Amen? And so we want to rebuke and exhort with all longsuffering and gentleness. And we want to speak with grace as though seasoned with salt and making the most of every opportunity that we have, no matter the situation. But we have those promises that we are in Christ. And all those promises we need to remind ourselves of, especially when the enemy comes and tries to bring condemnation. Why do you think it says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation? Because there are believers that, that feel condemned. There are non-believers that do as well. And it's one of the best ways to actually share the gospel. I think that one of the easiest, uh, I don't want to say easiest because uh, everything's a miracle, but I think for me, one of those conversations that's really easy to have that starting point and hopefully see the Lord do a work is for those who came out of the Catholic Church that have what we call Catholic guilt, where this guilt is not the guilt that is removed through the blood of Jesus Christ, but is perpetually placed back on them with every sin. That is far different than what the Bible describes for the believer. 
right? This is, this is far, far different. And being able to open that up and show there is no, no condemnation for those that are in Christ, not those who are practicing unrighteousness. If you're living unrighteously and not following and trusting Jesus, <coughs> I'm not going to give you a message of assurance. I'm going to warn. Amen? I'm going to warn. It's very important. But this is to those in Ephesus, and he is describing those who have left that and are now seated in heavenly places. Verse 2. And it's going to juxtapose it. So put it up against. In which you formally, past tense, you formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Guys, if you do not believe that Satan uses those that do not have the Holy Spirit inside of them, I'm telling you, the Bible says you are wrong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we have the temple of God and the temple of idols. And Paul uses idols and demons synonymously. He uses them, in, it, 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 you could say idols or you could say demons, he means the same thing. And it says, for the believer, we are the temple of God. And what do we have in common with the temple of demons? In 1 Corinthians, he talks about not sitting at the table of the Lord and the table of devils at the same time. We need to recognize the difference. And it is not a, I'm so much better than you. It's, I recognize I was nothing without Christ. In fact, before you even get into the spiritual warfare aspect of of. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, you need to fall under the mighty hand of God. You need to recognize how futile you really are. Jesus said, apart from me in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. But guess what? Through Christ, we can do all things. Amen? That is something we need to have in our hearts. How clear it is that apart from Christ, I am absolutely not, I'm worse than nothing. Nothing would be an improvement of what I truly was prior to knowing Christ and him not only dying for my sins, but loving me enough to bring me to himself. Such a beautiful, beautiful thing that we have. And Colossians puts it this way, very similar in the juxtaposition, but at us being seated. In Colossians 3, 1 through 4, it says, Therefore you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is so important for us to understand because part of the spiritual warfare that we need to keep in mind is the Lord's return. In fact, it's going to be mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6 during the armor of God, that helmet of salvation, recognizing that we are going to be with him in glory. That is something that we shouldn't set aside and forget about. I'm sorry, but those churches that say eschatology, end times, we shouldn't be talking about it. It just divides. And I'm sorry. The word salvation is eschatological. It has to do with end times. At least one of the tenses that is used. It's that future salvation when we get to be with him forever and ever. 
And that's something that needs to be at the forefront of our minds. That's the helmet of salvation, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.8. That's the helmet. The Lord's return, I know that he's coming back for me. I need to have that at the top of my mind. If I don't have that at the top of my mind, all these other things, altruism, you know, the, you know, Mormons, they do a lot of good works, right, for their salvation. There are plenty of people that do a lot of good things, even those are atheists because they're made in the, um, their imago Dei, they're made in the image of God. And so, yeah, they can do things that look really good on the surface, but what is it for? What is the purpose of all this? The helmet of salvation reminds me that everything that I do, everything that we do as the body of Christ has an ultimate purpose. That's why I quote almost every time I teach the C.T. Studd poem. I love that poem. It was a missionary to Congo. And he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life is burned out for thee. I will quote that every time I teach probably because it's something I want at the forefront of my mind. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Jesus is going to last. Everything else is going to burn up. The trophies, whatever that is won, is going to burn up all of it. And the one thing I want to do is bring more people to know Jesus and warn my brethren and do what Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 through 14 says and see to it that my brethren are not taken captive, are, not, are taken away by the deceitfulness of sin and fall away from their living God. I need to do that by warning about what the Bible says concerning it because it's a reality. It's not something that, oh, that's just for some people that, you know, they kind of had a faith, but it wasn't a real faith, you know? They were just half pregnant. I'm like, that doesn't exist. You're either saved or unsaved. I got that line from Travis from his football coach. I like that one. You can't be half pregnant, right? You can't be half saved. Like, you, you can't be half saved. You can't have people that just have a taste, right? As they'll try to say, oh, he just tasted salvation in, in Hebrews 6. The same word that said that Jesus tasted death. Yeah, he really died. And guess what? There are those who do know Christ who turn from him. Apostasy is a real thing. It's not a fake thing. And it does happen. And it is our job. And it's not just the job of the pastor, the elder, the deacon. It's not just the job of the evangelist. It's the job of every believer to see to it, brethren, that nobody has a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from living God. And guess what? James 5 tells us if we see someone who strays from the truth in James 5, 19 and 20, that when you bring him back, it saves his, not flesh, as someone might want to teach you, his suke, his soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. Spiritual warfare matters because Satan is still after your soul. Spiritual warfare matters in the believer because he's still trying to come and get you. Otherwise, who is Peter talking about in 1 Peter 5.8? It's not to non-believers. He's not telling non-believers to be sober and vigilant because they're adversary of the devil. They're already his children. We need to recognize that Satan is attacking and he's doing it for a real apostasy, not a fake one. Don't get me wrong. He wants to swallow up the seed when you go and share the gospel with somebody. As the parable of the sower says, that there are those that you go and share and he comes and swallows it up immediately. I'm sure you guys have been there when you shared the gospel and you're like, this guy doesn't care. And you have to recognize, I can't throw my pearls before swine. You have to have discernment and grow through that. But it's so important for us to understand it. And so we see 
those two different positions, the believer and the non-believer, the child of God and the child of the devil. And we look at those and say, well, what's the main difference? And what are the practical ways in which I say, I am not going to fall for the schemes of the devil? I want to take you back to Ephesians chapter four, because it is so important for us to understand that just like with every verse, it's not isolated from its context. We started in 427 to say we don't want to give Satan a foothold. We don't want to give him a place. We don't want to give him any sort of opportunity to grab us and drag us down. And by the way, when you look at Ephesians, when it says that, not long after, you have a bunch of commandments about the father and his wife and his children. People forget so much how much of a spiritual war there is for your children that Satan wants to get them. And I believe with everything in me that when Satan isn't getting you, he will attack your children over and over again, without a doubt. Quick story, I've told this before, but my my wife and I were up up late one night and um, I was putting together something for Good Fight Ministries and there was a show coming out on Netflix and um, it was uh, about Sabrina, this witch, not the teenage witch. They made like a really more satanic version where she does this um, uh, black mass um, sort of thing, give your heart to Lucifer. It's pretty crazy. And, and it was like, wow. And they sent an ad to every Netflix user, which probably most people should have probably canceled that Netflix. Uh, that's your conviction. Convict your heart if it doesn't, but probably should have canceled it then and before they were doing cuties with the little girls dancing provocatively. But, um, but they sent out an invitation to what they called the black baptism. And it was an inverted baptism of Satanism. And the picture that was sent out in every email to anyone who was a Netflix user, I had it sent to me um, from Tony, actually, Palacio. He was like, dude, I just got this. Check this out. And it was a giant pentagram. It was like, you are invited. And it looked like an invitation to like a baptism. But the baptism was for Satan. And I was like, wow, that's really crazy. And I was like, I should post about this on Good Fight so people know like this is the kind of stuff that Netflix is putting out. And... I, I was setting it up. I, I put it there. I showed Holly it and, you know, s- scheduled it to post in the morning. And then all of a sudden, from my child's room, I heard a scream from my son I had never heard before. And he, I go and I grab him and I pray over him. And I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he, I've never showed him a pentagram. He was probably four, maybe five at the time. And um, he said, I was standing there and there was this uh, circle and there was a star in the middle and it was coming after me and there was all these demons. And I was like, whoa. And um, so we prayed over him and he still remembers that. And I told that story on a podcast once and my wife was listening to it when I was uh, out at work and he heard it and he's like, yeah, I remember that. And he started expressing it. And I was like, wow, I had just had a conversation with a brother uh, about his children, how Satan will attack your children. There is a, there's a reality there that he will go after them to try to get to you without a doubt. And we need to recognize it. And in Ephesians 5, when it talks about the marriage, when it talks about how a father uh, should not exacerbate his children and so forth, that's right before the staunchest um, decree from God on how we are to face the enemy. 
it's kind of it's kind of interesting. But in Ephesians 4, we had already read verse 27. Let's back up to verse 17. I love reading things in context. We, we te- I teach a lot with the young adults in the high school, and we always say, try to read with 2020 vision, right? If somebody comes and they give you a verse, a lot of times it has a pretext. They have a reason they're trying to give you just one verse. So at least read the first 20 verses and the, and the uh, before and after to make sure someone's not trying to trick you, you JWs, you know? Uh, but, uh, but let's go to verse 17. It says, so this day... I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Notice a few things there. This is prior to the first verse we talked about in verse 27 about not giving Satan a foothold. Prior to that, and notice some of the language that is used in that, in that verse, that you don't walk their futility of mind, but notice it says, because of the ignorance that is within them. There is a ignorance that is within those who do not recognize what is happening to them and how Satan has them already. There is an ignorance, and we do not want to walk like them. Why are you walking like the world? Why is there no difference from you and the world? That's a big problem if there's not. Verse 19, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity, with greediness, every kind of impurity, because guess what? They have no idea they're even in a battle. They are sitting out there in the middle of warfare, wondering, how did I get here? They look like like Mr. Bean. You know, how did I get here? What's going on here? They have no breastplate of righteousness. They have no helmet of salvation. They have no sword of the spirit. They have no belt of truth. They have no feet shod with the gospel. They have nothing. They're in their futility of their mind. They're just given over to every sexual desire that ever comes to them. It is such a heartbreaking thing to see that. I'm sorry, but this is just true. I look at all of the disgusting things that have happened at the Vatican and through that church and through them and the things they've done to children, and I say, well, you try to fight against sin without the Holy Spirit. See how that goes for you. Of course that's going to take place. And for those who are not saved, they do not have the Holy Spirit. They walk in futility of mind. You keep trying to fight and fight and fight against sin and have no victory. It is those who are in Christ with the Holy Spirit inside of them, according to Romans 8, that have laid aside the deeds of the flesh and put it to death that they themselves are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not through our own, but through him who loves us. More than conquer. I love that. I love that. Going conquer, conquer the sin that is trying to so easily entangle you and the encumbrance that is stopping you from running your race with endurance. And do not let your heart become callous. Sin is habit forming. When you give in a little, you give in a lot. You give in, you give in, you give in, you give in. And you need to do, if, you're, if you have a sin that is tied up, tying you up, if you have a sin that is keeping you from a true and loving relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to get it untied. You need to put it to death, not put it to punch. I mean, kill it. Sin is either killing you or you are killing sin through the Holy Spirit. Kill it. Do not become callous. That is one of the biggest things. People will simply go and say, it's just who I am. Instead of fighting, instead of getting up and saying, I'm not going to let it happen, they go, 
I'm just, you know what? It's just how God made me. No, it's not. He didn't make you for that. Sin is doing that to you. And you are allowing it. And sin is habit forming. Stop allowing it to callous you, to making you, um, as it talks about, searing the conscience as with a hot iron. Don't allow that anymore. Say, no, I'm not giving space for the devil. I recognize he is trying to kill me. He is trying to take me away from my family. You know how hard it is to look at somebody who has lost their whole family and now they're only recognizing after he's already gotten them? It started typically with some eyes, with a look they shouldn't be looking at, maybe with some things on their phone, some text messages they shouldn't have sent. In the book of Proverbs, we've been going through the book of Proverbs slowly <laughs> with our young adult group. In the book of Proverbs, we just finished chapter six. And one of the things that um, Dr. Derek Kinder points out in his commentary on that is that notice that it's the eyes first. It's the eyes first that lure. Do not long and gaze after her. And that's something over and over again that Solomon, which, who fell into his own deep, dark sin, right? That's something that he recognized, the luring, in fact, when it talks about drunkenness in Proverbs 23, 31 through 35, it says, don't look at wine when it's red in the cup. Don't look at it as it sparkles in the glass for it bites like a hush, like a serpent. The same word used for Satan in Genesis, right? It bites like a serpent. You'll wake up with bruises and then say, oh, I'll just go get another drink. That was the autobiography of Chad Davidson. I used to keep that note card, Proverbs 23, 31 through 35, written in my wallet when I first came to Christ until it was written completely on my heart and I didn't even want any, didn't, no desire for it anymore at all that God took away. God, don't let me become callous by letting little sins through, by letting those jokes come through with, with my coworkers that I shouldn't have said, by letting language come out that I shouldn't have said, by going and thinking, oh, I can have a relationship with a non-believer. That's totally fine. Somebody who's not totally sold out for Christ. It is so sad to watch that. I had a friend that he talked about the fact that um, his daughter uh, was a heroin addict. She would go off and on and off and on and off and on. And one of the things that he said, you know, I, he's like, my daughter could do those 90-day programs, get clean and everything would be fine. And, and he said, you know what? I would rather put the drug of her choice in front of her than after getting out of one of these Christian programs some guy who has the hots for her. He's like, because that will take her away like that. Every single time. And a lot of times, that's what happens. In fact, uh, Dr. Craig Keener in his, in his commentary on 1 Peter chapter 5 talks about how the Jewish people believed that and talked about how Satan would come after the high priest uh, basically through beautiful women. And that, that, that is true, right? And, and for men too, there are a lot of dirty dogs out there. It's just true. A lot of guys that want to corrupt, that are looking at disgusting things on their phone and then imagining it with your daughter or your friend or your neighbor or your sister in Christ over and over again because they're not putting it to death and they're growing callous because they're allowing little things and their eyes are allowing them to lure and they can't keep their eyes off it. And it needs to be killed. It needs to be plucked out and cut off. Done. And if there's sin in the camp, it needs to be removed. There is no fruit in your life if you're just continuing to walk in sin and growing callous of sin. Verse 20. 
But, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Notice how often sin, when warned against in Scripture, is accompanied with deceit. It's deceitful. In the book of Proverbs, when it talks about the woman of folly, she ambushes somebody unaware. She sneaks up while the Holy Spirit is out there crying from the street tops, convicting our hearts, God using our conscience to bear witness against us, using his creation to know and make it evident to us that he exists, over and over again, calling us against the sin, turn away from it and follow Jesus Christ. Sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. Verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. Verse 25, therefore, that's connective tissue, guys. Therefore, after everything we just read and also the, the rest of the chapter prior, that's the connective tissue that's gonna bring this together. Therefore, what? We always ask the question, what is the therefore? Therefore, therefore, Laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. These are the practical applications of verse 27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give him a space. Do not give him a foothold. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. These are practical applications for the believer to how not give or how not to give the enemy a foothold. Lay aside the falsehood. Guys, I'm just being honest with you. I've, I've met people, talked to people, hung out with them, and at church, sometimes you get people's Instagram pictures at church. They show up, their kids may be out of tension while they're there, right? You get those smiles and everything's fine. How you doing? How was this week? And you're not real. Guys, there are plenty of giant churches where you can just go in and go out and you don't got to be accountable to anybody. Plenty of people have told me that's why they go to a big church in some form or another, if they're being honest. I don't want to be involved in everyone's life. Guys, that's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is involved in other people's life. You cannot fulfill the law of Christ without bearing one another burdens, according to Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2. You cannot fulfill the law of Christ, which is what we are under. We are no longer under the old law or the old covenant, we now fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. You cannot do that without knowing one another and loving one another and being a part of a community of believers. We cannot do it and we will have no victory. You will have no victory if you are fake. I'm sorry. It's pharisaical. It cannot happen. The way we get victory is by loving one another, by not having deceit in our lips, those who are doing wickedness, yes, it says those who steal, steal no longer. But there should be a practical application in our lives that is not just stealing. How about any of those sins? 
that so easily entangled you prior to being a believer. These are the former lusts of the flesh that we don't want in our lives. What do we want as believers in Christ? To lay aside, kill the old man, kill him. He needs to be dead. Steve, uh, Pastor Steve gave a message at the men's retreat years ago about when it comes to the enemy in warfare, you have to kill him. You, you can't just in, disable him for a little bit, right? Because he'll come back. You just take out part of it. Oh, he's, he'll be all right. He's just hobbling a bit. No, you got to take him out. And that enemy is your old self trying to creep up and sneak in deceitfully. And Satan will use that flesh to come after you. I want to go to, I got to skip a couple things. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 6. We got to get to verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. There are a lot of practical applications that happen throughout Ephesians right there in chapter 4, 5, and obviously in 6. But all of those practical applications telling us how to live now, how to walk, how to work in our family, how to work in our marriage, how to be a great example to to non-believers because of our marriage and how it's supposed to look, (coughs) all of those are awesome. But then Ephesians 6 is going to hammer the spiritual warfare. We already know we're seated in heavenly places, that we are in Christ, that we are no longer those, and make sure we're not those who walk in unrighteousness, that we no longer follow um, the marching orders of the prince of the power of the air. As it says in Colossians, we've been taken from the dominion of darkness, and we're now in the dominion of Jesus. Right? I always like saying that. Let's get on team Jesus, man. Let's get on team Jesus. But then here's some practical application for us. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's first and foremost. Before you get into spiritual warfare and be like, this is how we battle, you have to know how futile you are. You have to know how weak you are in and of yourself. You are not strong in and of yourself. Trust me. I've counseled and talked with a lot of brothers and sisters as well in Christ who thought, I didn't think that would bother me. I didn't think that would happen. Take heed where you stand, lest you fall. Recognize how futile you are, how weak you are. And that is what Paul was able to do in 2 Corinthians, where he expressed it. It was before he wrote it, but when he recognized that his strength is perfected in his weakness through Christ's strength, the power, any power that Paul had was perfected through his weakness because of the strength of Christ. It is so clear. That's why even the demons know Paul's name. I think it was Hudson Taylor when asked because of how many, I mean, I believe there are millions and millions of people who have come to know Christ because of the work of Hudson Taylor. And I, I quoted C.T. Stutter earlier. He was part of the Cambridge Seven that went and worked with Hudson Taylor. And he, he was in China, the China Inland Mission. And not only did they do amazing work in China, but guys like D.L. Moody and C.T. Studd and these wonderful men of God who did crazy radical things, they were all involved with him. And guess what? The Cambridge Seven came to America and basically preached at all these churches to say, what are we doing? Let's get the gospel out all over the world. And missions today that are going out literally go back to that. And they asked him, how did you do it? Like, what was it that, you know, basically made you so strong to be able to be such a wonderful missionary 
of God. And he said that God looked all over for someone weak enough to do it. I'm summarizing, but I was like, wow, what a statement. And what a statement here when we recognize the wiles of Satan and him coming after. Hey, Eric, can I get that gluten-free stuff, bro? Sorry, I'm weird. Uh, I, last time I took it, I got a headache. I, I'm like, man, I am weak. Praise God. He's strong. But uh, my wife has Hashimoto's disease, so I, I stopped eating gluten 15 years ago or something. Um, but, but it's one of those things right away we recognize, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then we get verse 11. Put on the full armor of God. Why? We get the answer. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. I don't like the NASB here. It says, for we struggle. And this was actually the first verse I ever, thanks brother. This was actually the first verse I ever memorized in my Bible. Um, and the reason I memorized it is because I looked it up online about two hours after giving my life to Christ. I typed in wrestling in the Bible. And uh, I found Ephesians 6.12. And the word is uh, payel, which is actually wrestling. It's actually a combat sport. And it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, more connective tissue, we are wrestling not simply against flesh and blood. And guess what? If Paul is telling us we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, that means that people seem to tend to forget that, right? If he has to say it, it's because they might be forgetting that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So now that therefore, since it's not a flesh and blood battle, since the weapons of our warfare, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, since the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, since we wrestle not against flesh and blood, here's what it says. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This is important. Resist. A lot of people, oh, what, what does resist mean? The way it's used in the Old Testament and here as well. And notice as we read through the armor of God, we're going to read through this to finish this up before communion. As we read through the armor of God, all of the armor is in the front, not the back. All of it is in the front. The reason why is when you look, even at that time and in ancient times, when someone retreated, it was the easiest time to kill them. It was the easiest time to kill them. So when you look at the armor, and as a side note, this armor originally is God's armor in Isaiah 59, 17. A lot of this armor that Paul brings out is something that God puts on for his wrath. So putting on the full armor of God is not you like putting on some shoes. Putting on the full armor of God is you saying, God, put this on me. It's yours. This is your armor. When you come and pour out wrath, this is what you use. And here's what it says. Remember, this is not a retreat. This is a resist. The same resist that is used in James 4, 7. It says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It also tells us in 1 
Peter chapter 5, after it says in verse 7 that we need to cast all our cares and all our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. And then it says, be sober and vigilant for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Then it says to resist. Again, same word, resist, resist, resist. And it's not turning your back and running. It's resist. It's stand up and fight. That's where you got your shot. And no, it's not your own strength. Stand firm, therefore, having girding your loins with truth. First and foremost, gird your loins with truth. And notice that's the first thing. It has to be the truth. The great thing about the gospel is not that it's a good philosophy and a good idea that can give you the cherry on top of your life. The good thing about the gospel is that it's true. The good thing about the gospel is that it's true that Jesus lived. It's true he walked on water. It's true he did miracles. It's true he died. And it's true he resurrected on the third day. So it starts with knowing it's the truth, not just that I'm heredit- I'm, it's hereditary. I come down and my parents were saved, so I'm saved. It is not that at all. It is It's true, therefore I believe it because I'm someone who wants to align with the truth. We gird up our loins with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Remember those breastplates, a lot of times, think about a metal breastplate, right? That could stop something from penetrating. And guess what? You would be forced to do what in righteousness? Stand upright. When, guess what it says of the wicked? It says the righteous are as bold as a lion, but the wicked flee when no one is going after them. When you are walking in righteousness and people are throwing arrows and saying bad things about you and making up stuff about you, you are standing upright because you know you're walking in righteousness. You're not worried about some thing coming out from your closet of stuff you're hiding. You're walking in righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, go out and share the gospel. Philemon verse six says, I pray you're active in sharing your faith so you have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ Jesus. If you are out sharing the gospel, it holds you more accountable. If you're out sharing the gospel, you're doing it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are out doing your father's work and are about his business, that is where you're gonna have victory. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, and I love this, guys, brings it back. Taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. When he starts throwing those darts of doubt, when he starts shooting the arrows at you, and you hold up that shield of faith, the way Peter talks about it, he said, I hold on to his precious and magnificent promises. And I think about the word precious, and when I think about precious, I always think about a little baby. And I'm telling you this right now, If I gave you one of my precious children, and sadly when I left, three of them, Justice stayed healthy because he was with me all weekend, but um, three of them were all thrown up all night. And I looked at my daughter this morning and she had a smile on her face because she was happy I was home from last night. I hadn't seen her in a couple days. And I was like, wow, my little daughter, she's so precious, you know? And if I handed my daughter over to you, it's like, can you watch my precious daughter? And you just set her to the side and kept walking. I would be pretty upset. And when God calls his promises precious and magnificent, we don't set them to the side. We hold on to them and you hold on to them recognizing there are things that you may not know. There are things you may not understand in the plans of God and the things that happen in this world. But I am not trading those things which I do not understand and not know for the things I've come to know in the truth of the gospel. And I'm going to hold on to my precious and magnificent promises that God has given me and hold on to them as precious in the same way I'd hope you'd hold my daughter as precious. Amen? The last one, and the last one's really prayer, but I'm, 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 we're going to partake of communion here in a second. But I want to finish on verse 17. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You gotta be ready for battle. This isn't a retreat. It's it's an engage and it's not in your own strength. That helmet of salvation is a promise according to 1 Thessalonians 5.8 of the Lord's return. Recognize who our God is. Recognize, just read Revelation chapter one and see what Jesus is really like. People want to have really cool pictures of him, you know, you know, playing with sheep and so forth. But let's talk about the one with eyes like a flame of fire. Let's talk about the one with feet like burnished bronze, right? Let's talk about the one with the voice of the sound of many waters. Man, that is my Jesus. And he is coming to rule and to reign. Amen? All right, guys, we're going to, if you could please stand, we're going to partake of communion together.